Our uh, Bible reading tonight is taken from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and uh, continues the the series we've been uh, doing on Timothy where uh, last week we were uh, looking at where the Apostle Paul had given Timothy some instructions for uh, leadership in the church and the need for good order in the church and now he goes on to tell Timothy why that's important. So please uh, follow on with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, starting at verse 14, we're going through chapter 4, verse 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars who con- whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thanks for that reading, Eric. Um, As you've heard, uh, we're moving through Timothy, and there's um, an outline of what I'm going to consider tonight. It's got a different heading, actually, but the three points are great. So um, that'll give you a bit of an outline of where we're uh, moving through this passage that's just been read for us. 
Um, one quick announcement before I pray and we get into this passage. Um, some of you would have seen an email I sent out this afternoon, or you may have um, seen stuff on Facebook already. Uh, but the sad news about our good brother um, Liam McHenry is that he passed away uh, yesterday about 11 a.m., and there will be a Thanksgiving service for him here in the church um, this Thursday at 12 noon. Um, so if you've um, known him or available to come and be part of that and encourage Nicole and their kids, we'd love you to be part of that um, this Thursday. But please um, uphold the family in prayer uh, at this really hard time. I'm going to pray for us now as we come um, to God's word and ask that he'll help us as we wrestle with it. So please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for uh, the way that you speak into our lives through your word, that if we have trusted in your Son, that you open our eyes, you unstop our ears, that we may hear your voice as we read your word, which is living and active. And uh, we pray tonight that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to grasp uh, how your people, uh, the church, should live and conduct themselves as we consider uh, Paul's words to Timothy. We pray for your help in this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Stonehenge uh, stands in all its uh, beautiful and enigmatic glory on the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire, England. Uh, the site contains uh, numerous carved bluestones that uh, weigh about six tonnes and, of course, are stacked on top of each other in that now famous formation. Archaeologists have ascertained that uh, the monument probably dates back to about 2500 to 3000 BC. But I guess there's a great mystery that surrounds it, and that is, uh, what is the purpose uh, of this creation? It's been highly debated. Um, it's one of those uh, mysteries of human history. And of course, the theories are pretty extensive as a result. Uh, some believe it was uh, due to some glacial movement. Others think it's just a, a brilliant man-made miracle. Uh, others think it foretells of an alien invasion that once happened uh, or is coming. Um, some say the place is filled with healing power. But I guess the most commonly uh, understood uh, theory today is that Stonehenge is a burial ground. Uh, that's been supported, I guess, by some archaeological evidence from about 2008 where they found um, evidence of cremated uh, bodies that match uh, the age, the estimated date of Stonehenge's creation. I've got to say, having uh, visited in 1999, uh, it certainly is a place of mystery. I, and I think it will always retain some of that, whatever our theories about it. There's something about it that we'll never fully comprehend at this point. But you see, whether it's Stonehenge or the Bermuda Triangle or Bigfoot or my son's favourite, um, Loch Ness Monster, uh, we're used to calling these kind of things mysteries. But as we come to this section of 1 Timothy tonight, we find the Apostle Paul talking about the mystery from which true godliness springs. And I think we can be drawn into thinking that here's another unknown. But is it a mystery in that sense? What is Paul getting at in this section? We're considering a topic here tonight where the Apostle's really looking at how the church might conduct itself. So the first point that that brings us to on your outline is the spring of true godliness. Point one, the spring of true godliness. So have a look again at verse 16 and what uh, Paul records there. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. 
This second part of verse 16 um, is often viewed as a fragment of an early Christian hymn. Um, it's obvious focus here on Jesus. Um, some people think the six phrases here sort of step out. Uh, his incarnation, his resurrection and ascension in the first half. And then in the second half, uh, the result of his finished work, uh, the preaching of the good news, the belief that followed, and finally his glorification. And although there's some debate about the meaning of each of the phrases, it's clearly about Jesus and the ensuing work of the church. Jesus is the one here that's identified as the spring, the source, if you like, of true godliness. And if that's the case, we might wonder, well, what's the mystery here? Well, Paul always uses this word mystery in the New Testament to convey something that was unknown under the Old Covenant, but which has now been revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery was the salvation that Christ would bring that was unknown to those under the Old Covenant. And also the fact that the response of God's people um, to this grace that has been revealed in Jesus is ultimately motivated by him, seeking to follow him. Paul says elsewhere in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. But you see, the context of this discussion of the mystery of true godliness being Christ is really important. It's given for us in verses 14 and 15. Notice that um, this section that we're going to consider in chapter 4 tonight, indeed all the teaching that's happened in the previous three chapters, is all about how the church should conduct itself, Paul wants to say. It's all about how believers who form the church are to live, how they live out their Christian lives, interact with one another and the world around them. Paul's hoping uh, to visit the church, we learn in verse 14. He's hoping to come to Ephesus. There's some issues in the church, as we've been hearing in this series. There's some struggles with leadership, some struggles with the godliness of the people in the church. What was the priority? And Paul's wanting to correct those things. He's planning to come to Ephesus and, and deal with some of those things in person with Timothy. But he writes this letter, we're told here in verses 14 to 16, so that because he's delayed in the meantime, um, Timothy can get on with uh, correcting some of the issues. Now, it's not like Timothy doesn't know um, how a Christian should behave or the kind of leadership that should be put in place that we saw last week. He's aware of those things, but in writing it this way, Paul is instructing the church and it empowers Timothy to go and address some of these issues. It's a help to him as he comes to them with the authority of the Apostle Paul. The Ephesian church, sadly, seemed not to understand many of these things. And that brings me to the big question tonight. How should the church behave? How should the church behave? What is Paul going to show us here? Well, I think two key things, and this is the first of those is the second point on your outline. The first thing about how believers should live or behave is that they should reject false teaching. Rejecting false teaching. So notice the first answer to the question. Paul's wanting to say, have nothing to do uh, with these leaders that are taking you away from the truth. So have a look at verses 1 to 5 with me of chapter 4. Um, we see there that there's some people that have come into the church in Ephesus and they're um, teaching things that are really unhelpful. Um, verse 2 tells us that um, people are being led astray by these false teachers who Paul describes as hypocritical liars uh, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 
That's a pretty striking uh, kind of metaphor or picture there. Um, The seared consciences refers to them being deadened. Uh, The term has a medical sense, of course. It's like a picture of skin that's been destroyed by burning so that it's rendered insensitive, has no feeling. So a seared conscience has been anaesthetized. The person can't differentiate anymore between what is true and what is false. Well, these false teachers are the human agents of uh, a spreading error. It's leading people astray. But notice the source of this false teaching in verse 1 is actually demonic. There's a spiritual source to this that's underlying what these people are saying. And that explains an aspect of the confusion that's within the church. Notice the hypocritical liars are following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons in verse 1. So behind uh, the teaching... Paul sees the activity of the devil and his minions. Now, I think often today, uh, particularly in the Western world, we, we don't tend to take seriously that spiritual battle that's going on. It's invisible, unseen to us. But, of course, the Bible talks often about these things. And the Bible not only portrays the devil as the tempter, as trying to lead us into temptation and sin, but also as the deceiver, as trying to draw people away into error to get them off track, away from the truth of the gospel. Now, I think we see a lot of evidence of that, uh, to be honest, always have down through the generations. It's very clear today. For me, that explains why intelligent, uh, educated people can swallow you know, the often illogical speculations of like the New Age movement or particular cults that um, preach and teach really crazy things, but people can be persuaded and be following them. There's a power to some of these things, which Paul's pointing out here. There's both a spirit of truth, but there's also a spirit of falsehood that leads people into such error. Well, have a look at verses 3 to 5, because Paul turns to what these hypocritical liars are teaching, what it is that he's so hung up about. Well, notice in verse 3, they forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods. Now, uh, the avoiding of certain foods here, um, commentators believe, has got to do with meat perhaps offered to idols. Uh, that was a big thing, as we know, in Corinth. And there's a lot of that's written in uh, one section of Corinth, uh, the letter to the First Corinthians, about that. It's perhaps more generally just about not eating meat at all, perhaps an encouragement, we might say, towards vegetarianism. Um, the forbidding of marriage is about viewing celibacy as being more holy that a person's more godly if they don't marry. It's this kind of false godliness that's being imposed upon the people, saying, well, if you do these things, and this is really what God wants of you as you live as his people. Well, the point is that celibacy and vegetarianism, for that matter, are not God's general will for everybody. Uh, they might be uh, a good thing for an individual, but to forbid people to marry or to forbid people from eating meat or certain meats is to be guilty of serious error, Paul's saying. I say, why? Why is this such a big thing? Well, Paul gives us the answer, doesn't he, in the second half of verse 3 and into verses 4 and 5. We see there that marriage and certain foods and indeed many other things are good gifts from God which are created by him to be received by us with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. And so there's a principle here. It's a pretty simple one. How can anybody despise marriage, let alone forbid it, if God has instituted it? 
How can anybody command abstaining from certain foods when God has created them to be received with thanksgiving? As verse 4 says, For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. There's a reference there, isn't there, to Genesis 1 where um, we get that repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. All of his creation is good. Indeed, humanity as the pinnacle is very good. And so um, there's obviously no problem with someone choosing not to eat meat or to remain single. The Apostle Paul was single. He commends it in 1 Corinthians 7. It allows a person to give their undivided attention to serving the Lord. The issue is people commanding such prohibitions to imposing these legalistic things on other believers, constraining their consciences over things that God has not commanded in his word, where there's no biblical warrant under the new covenant. You need to recognize uh, there's a big broad principle here that's being taught. Uh, If we reject things that have been given by God, we start to enter into a a legalism that's a world-denying attitude. It actually insults our good creator. God's not a a negative party pooper who who wants to remove joy from life and introduce practices which um, constrain people on things in which have not been commanded but he's given for our good. These things are an attack on God's character. They're also a millstone that's being placed around other believers' necks that they're thinking such things are important and taking them away from the grace of God in Jesus. To command legalistic practices, Paul's got some heavy words here, isn't he? These are things that to impose them on Christians is to abandon the faith, he says. It's to follow deceiving spirits. How does that work out in our world today? I can remember quite clearly uh, my wife Christine uh, being horrified uh, as a teenager. She uh, was on beach mission down the south coast and um, she walked around uh, the back of a tent during mission and there she saw her team leader smoking a cigarette. She was horrified. She didn't know that he smoked um, in the kind of tradition she'd brought up in her parents and the circles that her parents mixed in. Um, you know, to do that was not only bad for your health, but it was a sign of faithlessness altogether. Um, you know, how could he be doing this? She was shocked and thought, what is going on here? And I, I've got to say, um, my parents had such beliefs drilled into them as well. Indeed, many of the churches across Australia and elsewhere in the world throughout the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, you know, you heard a lot of, about the things that you could not or should not do. You know, a Christian should never smoke, should never touch alcohol, should never play cards, should never dance, should never go to the theatre, and, and on and on the list would go sometimes. Well, you know, I think that legalistic uh, baggage has a real impact on some people as a result. I'm sure it has on myself in part, as I heard that in my early years from my parents. Um, some of you... I'm sure we'll be able to relate as well. These are man-made rules. Uh, They're often born out of great concern for people, you know, a desire to protect them against things that might flow out from that or lead to sin. But the Bible doesn't say anything about smoking cigarettes. I'm certainly not going to encourage anyone to do that. I don't think it's great for your health. But I can't start going around sprouting commands about not to smoke. The Bible doesn't have anything to say negatively about dancing either. And with regards to alcohol, the issue of godliness is that you are not to get drunk, not that you must never touch alcohol. 
Now, again, I'm not encouraging people to um, start uh, drinking if they don't. Drunkenness and the associated violence and indeed the car accidents and so on is arguably one of the leading problems in Australian society today. Uh, We're a nation that struggles with that addiction. So I'd be very cautious of it. But if I think I could go around and start commanding Christians not ever to touch alcohol, however good my motives of seeking to protect people are, then I have become a false teacher that's trying to impose legalisms, legalisms on fellow Christians. Christians who are now under grace, not under law. Now, as a result, we've got to think really hard about these kind of issues, to be very careful not to go beyond God's word into territory that we have not been given instruction on. So you notice the antidote to such false godliness too in verses 6 and 7. Paul wants to say a good minister or a good servant of the gospel, whether that's a church leader as Timothy is or any believer that's part of the church community, they should point out false legalistic teaching to others and have nothing to do with it themselves either. Paul refers to them in verse 7 as godless myths. Instead, he wants to say, train yourself to be godly at the end of verse 7. Well, that brings me to a a third point. Point three on your outline, training in true godliness. If there's a false godliness to be avoided, what is the true godliness that we're to positively pursue? Well, this is where Paul heads to now from verse 8. Have a look again with me from verses 8 to 10. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And this is why we labor and strive, because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So before explaining how to be trained in godliness, notice here Paul first highlights the value of it, the value of being trained in godliness. Now, way back when, uh, in uh, first and second year of university, I was put under a lot of pressure by a good friend of mine um, to do some physical training with him in the form of the martial art taekwondo. Um, No, I can't break anything. And I'm not sure that I had a burning desire to be Brett Lee. I was not into watching lots of martial arts movies or anything like that. I was interested in getting fitter. And I discovered over about 18 months to two years that um, a guy wearing a black belt could actually make me do push-ups and sit-ups that I wouldn't do at home myself. I, I just didn't have the discipline to do it. But after a couple of years and going up three belts from white to green tip, and no, that's not the one just before black, um, I gave up. You know, I, I, Perhaps it was... I felt it was too much money to keep paying this guy in this white dressing ground, even if it was tied up with a black belt. Um, Perhaps it was because I'd reached the point where you did have to break wood with your hands, and I was wanting to learn guitar at the time. That wasn't helpful. Uh, But I think ultimately it had served its purpose for me. You know, I I had got fitter. uh, That was true. And there were other things that I wanted to spend my time on those two nights a week. You see, physical training has value as some personal trainers will tell you, but it's not everything. The superiority of spiritual training in godliness is that it not only has value now, but it has eternal value for the future. It prepares us for heaven. So the analogy here is athletic training. It's supposed to help us see that godliness still is hard work. Uh, It takes discipline. It takes energy, sweat, if you like. 
And I think that's emphasised. Did you notice in verse 10 that Christians should labour, they should strive for being godly, for growing in their godliness, growing in maturity. You know, we've got to apply ourselves. Uh, we hear it every four years at least as we get to the Olympics about these Olympic swimmers that you know, have been getting up every morning at 4am for four years and going down to the pool and training and doing a couple of hours of laps up and down following the black line. You know, we're not supposed to sit around and be content with our personal maturity in Christ. We need to press on and have that kind of level of discipline to keep growing. See, um, the difference between an athlete and a spectator is pretty obvious, isn't it? Uh, when you become a sports spectator rather than a participant, uh, the wrong things begin to happen to your body. Um, your weight, uh, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your triglycerides, they go up. Uh, meanwhile... Oxygen consumption, flexibility, stamina, strength, they go down. And so the conclusion is that an athlete cannot survive as a spectator. And likewise, a Christian can't grow in godliness by avoiding training. We've actually got to work at it. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. And so training in godliness, it has eternal value, Paul says. Notice how Paul returns to this at the end of uh, verse 10. He wants to say that we've put our hope in the living God who is our saviour. He's got a focus really here on heaven, our sure and certain hope. And so he's saying, strive now in the present to live godly lives as we wait for that day. Well, we've talked about the value of training in godliness, but how do you actually instill that at church? What can we do Sunday by Sunday that actually helps us all to grow as believers so that we are pressing forward for Christ? What should we focus on? Well, notice what Paul uh, says to Timothy here in relation to how he should train others in godliness in the church in Ephesus. Verse 11, he makes a statement. Command and teach these things. And then he goes on and we might be thinking, well, what are, what are these things? Well, it relates to everything he's just discussed uh, that we've been uh, talking about tonight, but the chapters before this as well. That is, he's to command the false teachers to stop. He's to teach the true gospel. He's to appoint leaders and create order in the church. He's to emphasize the need to grow in godliness, as we're seeing tonight. All of these things, teach these things, command these things amongst the church at Ephesus. And how is he to do it? Well, particularly, uh, the training is spelt out, I think, in verses 12 and 13, or the mechanism by which that happens. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Timothy is to be a personal example. He's to live it, first and foremostly, amongst the other believers in the Ephesian church. Set an example, Paul says, for the believers, in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy has to be an example of living out God's word, of being serious about what he's teaching and reading himself. And of course, such an example is going to be wasted actually on God's people unless they're growing in their understanding of God's word. If they don't know the scripture, how do they know that Timothy is being faithful to it? And so we're told in verse 13 that Paul then further states to Timothy that he should devote himself to the public reading of scripture to preaching it, and to teaching it. Well, they're key principles that govern what we do on a Sunday. Uh, we give so much space uh, to the teaching of God's word, not because we think it's the only thing that can build people up or encourage them, but because it is central to what God instructs his people to do. 
And so we grow as individuals as we read God's word, as we put it into practice, as we surround ourselves with other believers that are serious about God's word as well, who are following it and who are spurring us on to following it. And that's why Paul says to Timothy in verse 16, watch your life, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He needs to not only teach what is clear and from God's word, but he's got to live it too. And that may apply especially to leaders. Uh, Clearly, Paul is an apostle's writing to Timothy. He's the pastor at the church at Ephesus. But these are principles that relate to every Christian, like we've seen in the last couple of weeks. It's important for all of us. Now, none of us are perfect. We're all flawed. We live in this fallen world, and God is conforming us day by day more and more to the likeness of his Son. But we're going to fail at times, and we can come before God and seek his forgiveness. But as we fail, too, we're going to let others down. They will see our poor example at times, sadly. But that shouldn't uh, deter us. We should continue to strive for godliness. Hopefully as we go, there may be a step backwards occasionally, but then two or three steps forward. Why is this so important? Well, notice the reason that Paul gives to Timothy at the end of verse 16. He says, persevere in them, because if you do... You will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, I think when we first hear that verse, we think, hello, um, he's, he's gone off topic here, hasn't he? Is he talking about salvation by works? Is he saying that the good efforts that Timothy puts in to live in obedience to God's word is actually saving him? No, not at all. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere, and I think this is more the gist of where he's going Um, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. See, it's about perseverance. Verse 16 at the end here is about perseverance, and that's how that phrase starts. Persevere in them. Follow through on the salvation you've already received by grace. Live out the new life that you now have in Christ. You see, God will help us in that process. He will hold us. Uh, Philippians 1.6, he will finish the good work that he has started in us. But we're also called throughout Scripture to persevere to keep running the race, to run to the finish line. And such perseverance can be hard at times. We can struggle. I'm sure, like me, you've faced moments where it's been really difficult. You felt like living this Christian life is just more hard work than I can bear. But we're called to persevere. Persevere no matter what the struggles. Stand firm, hold fast. You know, there was an incredible uh, domestic flight in the United States in 1987. Um, Just a pilot and co-pilot flying from Portland to Boston. No passengers on board. Uh, They're in a small uh, plane. And they heard a noise at the back. And the pilot decided he needed to investigate this, handed the controls over to his co-pilot and went to the back of the plane to see what this mysterious noise was. He got to the back and as he was nearing uh, the tail of the plane and the back door, uh, they hit some turbulence and he was thrown against the back door and then he realised what the noise was. It had not been latched properly and immediately the door smashed open and he was sucked out. 
The co-pilot immediately sees the red light, the door open on, radios the airport that he might do an emergency landing, then radios the Coast Guard and says, send out a helicopter to look. We're this part over the ocean, just a few kilometres out from the shore. Find my pilot. He goes straight down, lands the plane, takes about five minutes to get there. And when they landed, um, a short time after that, they found the pilot. He was hanging on to the ladder of the door that had opened. He had caught it as he'd been sucked out of the door and he'd held on for five minutes while they'd flown at several hundred kilometres an hour and he landed with his face about six inches above the tarmac. When they got to him, he wouldn't let go of the ladder. (laughs) It took him several minutes before they could prise his fingers off this ladder. There's holding on in the face of great difficulty. Holding on. I mean, life can be turbulent in spiritual terms. Growth in godliness can seem like a lot of hard work at times. And you may not even feel like persevering. But have you considered the alternative? What would you let go for? You see, Christ's church needs to reject false teaching. It needs to train itself in godliness to work at it, to persevere, knowing that God will enable and help us in that process. And we do so to get a crown that will last forever. This is the conduct that God desires of his people. In Philippians 2, Paul pleads with the church there in this way, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to fulfill his purpose. Well, may that be our aim too. Will you join me in prayer?